This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. You may have noticed the world sounds different now. For some of us, we may be hearing sirens or hearing a lot of loud noise at work. But for others of us, the world is now suddenly quiet or quieter during this pandemic and orders from state and local officials to stay at home or shelter in place. You know how when the air conditioning is running and it's just sort of in the background, sometimes you don't even notice it. And then when it shuts off, you might notice the sound is then gone. It can be difficult to tell just how much sound is around us until it disappears. Right now, it's quiet in a way that maybe reminds us of how loud our world was to begin with. Later in this episode, we're going to speak with author and journalist David Owen. I remember when, right after 9-11, I live in the country, and I was outside and thinking, God, it's eerily quiet. Why is it quiet? And then I realized that it was that, that uh, all air traffic had stopped. I had never even been aware of the sound of airplanes, except, you know, every once in a while. But it, I, I hadn't realized that it was like a background sound that was there, even in this place that I think of as, you know, remote from urban populations. It's the same now. I spoke to David in March. At the time, this quieter world was still pretty new to us. It's not as quiet as it should be. It's not as quiet as it probably will be by the time this podcast airs. But you definitely see the effects of uh, slowing down of, of human activity. You think of all the workplaces that are shut down. People who work in big factories, you know, big pounding industrial operations. They're not exposing their ears. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Uh, but one thing we see is that, you know, it would be possible to live in a quieter world. It would be possible to have a smaller carbon footprint. Uh, the, the trick will be to figure out how we do it without locking ourselves inside our houses. Today on the podcast, we talk to David about the noise in our lives before the pandemic. What is the noise that is now missing from our days? And what does that noise mean for our health and hearing? Then later in the program, we'll talk to audiologist Vicki Tootin about occupational hearing loss and ways audiologists can help to protect against hazardous noise levels in the workplace. And we talk to Rick Neitzel. Rick is collecting data on noisy environments and how loud we listen to our headphones. His public health research could help to shape policies that one day change how our world makes noise. And Rick says, you can be a part of that research now. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the new ASHA Learning Pass. ASHA members have free, unlimited access to ASHA's catalog of CE courses through June 30th, 2020 in response to COVID-19. To start learning, log into your ASHA account at on.asha.org slash learningpass2020. That's Learning Pass with a capital L and a capital P. Support for ASHA Voices also comes from ASHA's new resource, That's Unheard Of. This online resource features a variety of tools developed to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. Check out thatsunheardof.org. In his latest book, Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World, author and journalist David Owen writes, Deafness is expensive. Earplugs aren't. David gives clear explanations of how we hear and the things that threaten our ears and hearing. With personal asides, comments from researchers, and real-world examples, David takes his readers behind the scenes of how we hear. And he writes in the first chapter that the greatest modern threat to hearing is excessively loud sound. 
I spoke with David in March, and I asked him how the modern world sounds different now than it did in the past. We evolved in a sound environment that was completely different from the one we live in now. Before the Industrial Revolution, thunderstorms, crashing waves, there weren't a lot of the kinds of loud sounds that threaten hearing. The Industrial Revolution was the big change in the human sound environment. And in fact, the first people to suffer what we think of as occupational hearing loss were people who pounded on metal. Metalsmiths, boilermakers, ringers of church bells. These are loud sounds and exposure to them over periods of time can can damage hearing. And then probably the biggest modern threat to hearing, or one of the biggest, is explosions, gunpowder, uh, gunfire. The number one and number two service-related health claims made by American veterans are tinnitus and hearing loss. They're both related to sound exposure during military service. We're going to talk a little bit more about occupational hearing loss a little later on in the interview, but I wanted to ask now, you write about the ways we're able to deafen ourselves with ordinary daily activities outside of work as well. Why do so many people love to turn the music up or feel the seat shake in the movie theater? It's thrilling, and there's some scientific evidence that listening to loud music is actually it's pleasurable. There's a, an effect on the vestibular system, which is the balance and spatial orientation system in the inner ear. There was a study that was done that showed that when people are exposed to really loud sounds, they get sort of pleasurable feelings of self-motion. You kind of feel like you're dancing even though you're not. There was some, somebody who posited the existence of what he called a rock and roll threshold, which is about 90 decibels, and that, that rock and roll has to be played that loud in order to work. When I was in my teens and 20s, I went to a lot of rock concerts. We always tried to sit right in front of the speakers, up as close as we could. At home, I, I would lie on the floor of my bedroom and tilt my JBL speakers over my head and crank the music as loud as I could. It was this same pleasurable feeling from exposing myself to, to sound that was really much too loud. One thing that's changed from that period is that I think I remember from my youth being told repeatedly about things that I was doing that could blind me. You know, don't shoot peas at each other. Don't shoot babies at each other. Don't snap that towel. You could put out an eye. You could blind your friend. You could blind yourself. I don't remember ever being told, don't do that. You could deafen yourself. We threw firecrackers at each other. We went to rock concert. We played music much too loud. I mowed lawns without ever putting on hearing protection. You know, at camp, we shot 22s, and we, we were never given earmuffs or any kind of hearing protection. When I, my wife and I bought our house, I used power tools, and never thinking about that I was potentially doing permanent harm to my hearing. My wife has always been much better about taking care of her ears than I have, and she puts on earplugs and always has when she uses the food processor. And she bought me a pair of earmuff-like hearing protectors when I was working on our house. But I only, I only wore them if, if she could see me. And if, if she wasn't around, I didn't bother to put them on. You mentioned earlier not using hearing protection. You're not alone in that. With so many ways to damage our ears, there are also many ways to protect our ears. And I'm wondering what you found was a common reason that people would not use hearing protection. There's a sort of a fallacious but, but old feeling that you kind of make your ears stronger by exposing them uh, to loud sound. There's also people notice you go to a, a rock concert and it's too loud and you have trouble hearing for a day or two and then your ears seem to go back to normal and you think, well, I just, you know, it's a, it was a temporary effect. And there are some temporary hearing loss effects. Scientists have become uh, increasingly certain that some of what we think of as temporary effects are actually permanent effects that we don't perceive all the consequences of uh, until later. 
that we we're doing actually doing physical damage, permanent physical damage to our this incredibly delicate auditory infrastructure inside our heads. There are reasons to be extra careful with ears. One thing you see is, you know, if I walk my dog from my neighborhood, the guys who are mowing lawns and using leaf blowers and all these incredibly loud tools, they're much more likely to be wearing hearing protection now than they were five, 10 years ago. In one way, people are much more aware of the danger of exposure to sound. But at the same time, the, the world has gotten much louder, and we have found new ways to pump sound into our heads. You see people wearing AirPods or earphones or headphones or you know listening to music, and they're listening to it at such a high volume that you can hear it sitting across the subway car from them. And you think, gosh, this is bothering me. What can it possibly be like inside the head of that person? These situations, to some degree, we can control, but there's other situations that are harder for us to control. Say we meet a friend at a restaurant. That restaurant might be loud. You talked about an experience where you were dining out with a friend, and you noticed there was trouble communicating. Oh, yeah. And as I was working on the book, I would ask people, I go, how's your hearing? And they say, oh, it's pretty good, You know, except when I'm in a restaurant. And it's a universal example that people give before they have trouble hearing. And the difficulty with restaurants is both at the sound levels, incredibly high, and also that uh, as we get older and as we suffer certain kinds of hearing loss, it becomes much more difficult to tune out the background noise, to hear speech against a background of noise. It's one of the most common forms of hearing problem is this inability to make sense of what people are saying uh, when they're in a, in a loud background. And restaurants are a huge example of that. And that problem is exacerbated by kind of design trends in the restaurant world. You know, you go to a restaurant now, they're not carpeted. They're all these hard metal surfaces. The kitchen is very likely right out where you can see it. So all the noise from the kitchen is cascading over the diners. They're louder than they used to be. And then there's a, a sort of a psychological element too, which is that even though diners complain about sound levels in restaurants, we also tend to avoid restaurants that seem too quiet because, you know, it's, it's so quiet. How good can it be? You know, you walk into a restaurant that sounds like it's just silent and you think, oh, this, this can't be any good. It would be, it would be hopping if it were a decent place. I think there's also socially, it's easier to converse with someone if you don't have something to say, if you can't quite hear each other. There's another place that we don't have a lot of control over the sound, and that is in the workplace, where we don't always get to determine how loud the things are around us. Can you talk a little bit about the threat that some workplaces can serve to hearing? Right. There are kind of two different kinds of threats from sound. One is from sound levels. So you're in an industrial workplace, and, and you're not wearing as much hearing protection as you could, and you're just exposed for hour after hour for long periods of time to sound levels that are known to cause permanent damage to hearing. There are federal regulations, there have been since the 1970s, that cover many kinds of workplaces, but those regulations are not sufficient to prevent hearing damage in everyone. In addition, there are many kinds of workplaces where the rules don't apply. People doing landscaping work, people working on oil rigs, people in agriculture. There are lots of jobs that are not covered by federal noise regulations. In addition, there are problems, including health problems, that are caused not by sound levels, but just by exposure to sounds of various kinds. This is the difference between sound and noise. Sound is a, an objective fact. You can measure it with a device. Noise is subjective. 
So, and the classic example is the faucet dripping down at the end of the hall. You could, you know, put a sound meter on your pillow and you wouldn't be able to pick it up. And yet it could keep you awake all night. Just this drip, drip, drip that you can just, just at the edge of, of awareness. In workplaces, often the challenge comes from sounds that aren't anywhere near loud enough to cause hearing damage, but they cause a kind of psychological imposition, the sound of the person next to you typing, people talking on the telephone. This is a problem that's made worse in open office environments, which are increasingly common. There's also exposure to transportation sounds. There have been studies done that show that people who live close to major transportation corridors, uh, busy streets, under the flight paths of airplanes, next to rail lines, and things like that, are exposed to sound levels that aren't necessarily intense enough to cause physical hearing damage, but they interfere with health in other ways. You know, they can cause insomnia, difficulty concentrating. They can exacerbate diabetes. They can cause heart problems. They're associated with low birth weight of infants. Those are consequences of, of sound that are not hearing related. They affect other parts of our health and well-being. A quick occupational story. You share in Volume Control a personal story about the time that you were working in uh, Bogota in Colombia, and you experienced an occupational loud noise in someone else's workplace that involved a pistol. Could you tell that story? It was. I was on a reporting assignment for The New Yorker, and I one day a couple of women picked me up in a car and took me to a kind of a rundown industrial park on the outskirts of uh, Bogota. And when I was there, the man that I had gone to interview shot me in the stomach from about eight inches away with a 38 caliber revolver. It was at my request because his business was making fashionable bulletproof clothing and I was wearing one of his jackets. But what struck me recently when I thought back on it was that at the time, before he shot me, he made me put on hearing protection, and he put on hearing protection himself, and he hollered across his this large workspace. It was like the size of a gymnasium, lots of women sitting at sewing machines, and he hollered out, put on your earplugs, and they all did without even looking up. They all put on the earplugs, and then he shot me, and I thought, wow, oh, that seems like excessively careful, but he was, he was exactly right. You know, a single gunshot is enough to harm your hearing. He was kind enough to make me protect myself from it. But what Ronald Reagan famously got a hearing aid in the 1980s, and that his hearing problem was traced to a single shot on a movie set. It was a single gunshot, a, you know, a blank that was fired close to his head and harmed his hearing on that side. The difficulty with hearing is that your tongue is constantly creating and shedding taste buds just through the day, constantly. But the ears we have are the only ears we get. This tiny, tiny, incredibly complex neural circuitry inside the inner ear it does not replenish itself. Uh, if we harm it, it does not regenerate. You get one set and a limited number of sensory cells, and we need to be careful with them. David Owen, his most recent book is Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World. David, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you. For more on the noise in our world, check out the May issue of The ASHA Leader, also available online at leader.pubs.asha.org. We just heard David Owen discuss the workplace hazards that could lead to occupational hearing loss. The National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health says about 22 million workers are exposed to hazardous noises annually, and it estimates that about one in four workers has been exposed to a hazardous noise. For a deeper dive into occupational hearing loss and its prevention, we're joined by audiologist Vicki Tootin. Tootin is a former director of the Prevention and Surveillance Branch at the U.S. Department 
Department of Defense Hearing Center of Excellence, and she's a former president of the National Hearing Conservation Association. Tootin will tell us how to ensure hearing protection is being used properly and how someone can retrieve their personal attenuation rating, or PAR, through fit testing hearing protection. The PAR tells just how effective hearing protection is working for a specific individual. But in the beginning of our conversation, Tootin suggests that if someone feels they're being exposed to hazardous noise levels at work, they have options. They can put distance or place a barrier between themselves and the source of the noise, reduce the volume of the hazardous noise, or if needed, use hearing protection. But she says not everyone uses hearing protection properly. I think the fact that hearing protection seems so simple makes people not take seriously the proper insertion of hearing protection. In some cases, it's about sizing. Some hearing protection doesn't fit everybody. There's really no such thing as a one-size-fits-all. And training is a big and very key factor in that. Having somebody take the time to ensure not only are you being provided a size that will provide a barrier, but that you are properly inserting it. There are ways to test whether or not that hearing protection is fitting properly, right? Can you tell me a little bit about fit testing hearing protection? Yes, let me me talk about fit testing, but let me just say one thing with regards to if you don't have a fit test equipment, that there are some self-checks that you can do to ensure you have a properly sealed hearing protector. For instance, if you have one with a stem, you can tug on the stem. You should notice a little bit of resistance. If both hearing protectors are in and you should count out loud to five, your voice should sound lower boomier and kind of in the middle of your head that tells you also that you've probably got a good seal. But those are very subjective, very subjective ways. And you really don't know what kind of protection you're actually achieving. An emerging technology is that of hearing protection fit testing. This fit testing equipment, there's a number of manufacturers and they all have different methods for obtaining a PAR. Some use real air attenuation at threshold, which is essentially testing an individual with and without their hearing protection on. Then there's a microphone in real ear method where a microphone is placed inside the ear canal while the hearing protection is worn and measurements are taken inside and outside the ear simultaneously. And then there's a loudness balance method where the individual matches loudness in both ears until tones sound of equal loudness on both sides without an earplug, repeated with one earplug, and then a third time with both earplugs inserted. They're all very portable systems which generally attach to a computer where the data obtained can be stored and a report is generated. Once you know the exposure level of the individual that you are trying to do a fit test on, you then subtract the PAR you obtained to obtain the estimate for what kind of exposure that person would have when wearing that particular hearing protection device. Who's running these fit testing machines? Is this something that would be brought into a place of business or is this something that would be in an audiologist's office? In the workplace, you probably are going to have technicians or maybe safety individuals who are taught how to run the equipment because they're often more involved in the day-to-day hearing protection issues. But let's consider the audiologist sitting in a clinical environment. I'm a firm believer that prevention is part of the continuum of care that we provide our patients. And I, irrespective of what reason they come to us, 
I think some discussion of prevention and what are they doing to protect themselves if they are exposed to hazardous noise, say recreationally, if not in their occupation, what are they doing to protect themselves? And audiologists could provide hearing protection for free with a little bit of training as a service, part of their service, or they could provide hearing protection for sale and do a fitting. There is actually a CPT code that covers the evaluation of a hearing protector. So audiologists could make that a part of their practice to do that sort of thing. At the end of our conversation, I recalled Vicky saying earlier that removing oneself from a noisy environment is among the best options for protecting one's hearing. And I asked her what options people might have if they are put in an environment with excess noise. Well, even though that might be the ideal way to remove yourself from the noise source, it's probably the one that is least likely to be an option for you, if, especially in the workplace. You can't just walk away and say, I'm sorry, that's too noisy. I can't do my job. Now, obviously, some things that employers have at their disposal are administrative controls where they can say, you know, this is kind of noisy, but we're going to ask you to only do this for a couple of hours a day. Therefore, the risk to your hearing is almost minimal or none because we've reduced the amount of exposure time that you're going to do this particular process. So again, it goes back to how loud and how long. Now, if it's a a very noisy task or process, that even time limiting may not be possible. Walking away from noise or turning it down at work, I don't think those options are necessarily easy for employees to take on their own. It's got to be kind of employer driven. But obviously, for things that we do outside of work, like personal listening devices, listening to our stereos, our car radios, going to concerts, you don't have to sit in front of the speaker. You can sit somewhere else, hopefully. And if you can't or won't, put some hearing protection in. Audiologist Vicki Tootin. Tootin is a former coordinator of ASHA's Special Interest Group 8, Audiology and Public Health. Find out more information about this group at asha.org slash SIG. That's SIG, S-I-G. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about those personal listening devices Tootin mentioned and why one researcher partnered with Apple to find out more about the sound that's going into your ears. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the new ASHA Learning Pass. ASHA members can earn ASHA CEUs and stay current with free access to the ASHA Learning Pass through June 30th, 2020 in response to COVID-19. Choose from more than 350 courses on topics important to you to start learning. Log into your ASHA account at on.asha.org slash learningpass2020. That's Learning Pass with a capital L and a capital P. Support for ASHA Voices also comes from ASHA's new resource that's unheard of. It's always important to check for blind spots in your practice that's unheard of. features a variety of tools developed to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. The tools are quick and easy to use. Learn more at thatsunheardof.org. You may have noticed the nearly ubiquitous use of headphones and earbuds. 
You may be listening to some right now, but questions around how these personal listening devices affect our hearing are still unanswered. It's a public health question, and our next guest is a public health expert. He's asking what kind of noise we're exposed to through our devices and in our daily lives, and he's partnered with Apple to get some of those answers. Rick Neitzel is a faculty member at the University of Michigan School of Public Health, and he's the principal investigator in the Apple Hearing Study, a research partnership between Apple and the University of Michigan. Rick joined me from Ann Arbor. I asked Rick to tell me about the kind of data this app is collecting and how it is collected by the Apple Research app. So we are trying really for the first time ever to use people's devices to get a better sense of the exposure they get through their headphones, listening to music, movies, etc., but also from their environment for those people who have an Apple Watch. And so there's a couple of different streams of data that people are voluntarily agreeing to share with us. So one, again, is the level of sound that they're being exposed to as they listen to music and other media through their headphones. We're also getting information information about the duration of their use. Both of these things are absolutely critical to try to understand how much exposure people actually have to music and other media through their headphones. For those participants with an Apple Watch, they can volunteer to share the environmental noise levels that the watch can measure. They can also choose to share with us their heart rate from the watch. And so collectively, we're getting information from those who have both devices on headphone exposure as well as environmental noise exposure. And finally, people will have the opportunity to take a hearing test on their device. So this is a way that we are able to collect information both on exposure and also on a health impact associated with noise exposure, that is changes in hearing. So I'm wondering, will people receive other types of notifications? I think I I receive a message sometimes, this is how much you had your phone on this week. Will those types of notifications be in the works, or is it a hearing test would be the best check-in? As part of this study, people will actually have a number of opportunities to interact with the research. So they will be able to take the hearing test at regularly scheduled intervals. They'll share their noise and headphone audio exposures continuously, and then they'll be prompted occasionally to answer surveys, and if they have exceptionally high noise exposures, they may be prompted to take a hearing test basically right after those exposures end. We're interested in long-term changes in people's hearing, but we're also interested in temporary changes that can occur for a short period after a very intense exposure. I think of times when I'm using my headphones at the gym, on an airplane, and when I'm in these noisy environments, like you mentioned, uh, I'm sure I have my volume up louder. And Will you be able to kind of coordinate and see how people react to these different environments? Yeah, for that particular question, participants who have both the watch and a phone, we can actually compare their background or environmental noise levels to their headphone noise levels. And that's going to help us answer a very important question, which is, what are people's usual listening volumes? As you say, it's quite likely that people who are in noisy environments, at the gym, riding the subway, whatever, are actually turning up their music to overcome that background sound. We're actually going to have data where we'll be able to quantitatively evaluate exactly how much they're turning it up so they can still enjoy their music over the din of our daily lives. I understand that the study data will be shared with the World Health Organization. And currently, the World Health Organization estimates that 1.1 billion young people are at risk for hearing loss, pointing to devices like our phones and loud concerts. Do you anticipate this research will change that number? 
I do. So the WHO, the World Health Organization, has been uh, pretty visionary, particularly in the last several years, at trying to understand exposures to people around the world and also the impacts to their health from things like noise. Unfortunately, the data that are available right now are generally of very poor quality or completely absent. So the WHO has been doing the best they can with very limited data. What our study is going to do is give them, as well as give U.S. policymakers, a much more nuanced and detailed sense of what Americans and potentially people around the world are exposed to and the potential health ramifications of that. So we're really hoping that this will be informative from a public health perspective, but also that this data can help us change the landscape in terms of how people view uh, the potential harms associated with the noise in our daily lives, as well as our music. And what might come out of that? What kind of policy? So you might imagine a whole suite of policies. Some might be focused on education. Probably many people are not aware that if they use their devices uh, incorrectly or listen for too long at too high a volume, they could be putting their hearing at risk. So there are opportunities here for us to push information out to the public to make them more aware of this potential hazard. So we're really hoping that bringing more data to bear here will let us assess a type of pollution that we acknowledge to our peril. We're all very aware of air pollution and water pollution and food contamination. Noise pollution, this invisible issue, hasn't been getting so much attention. So I'm hoping this study can help elevate and make people more aware about this potentially harmful exposure that all of us have. If you don't mind, could you give us a quick history lesson? Why don't we have more information about noise exposure and the noise in our environments? That's a great question. And Congress actually in 1972 gave the Environmental Protection Agency the responsibility and the jurisdiction to evaluate noise exposures in America. And also once they identified problems to actually do something about them. And so for a 10-year period from 1972 to 1982, the EPA's Office of Noise Abatement and Control was extremely active. They produced documents that are still cutting edge even now, almost 50 years later. They also began evaluating noise exposures to Americans in all walks of life. Now, unfortunately, when uh, the Reagan administration came into office, they viewed this office as a, a potential overreach of government power. And essentially zeroed out the budget for this office. So the office still exists on paper. Some of the laws they pass still exist, but there's basically nobody home at the EPA enforcing this. So we've had a bit of a vacuum for the past 40 years or so. Now, other nations have leapfrogged us. For example, the European Union, I would say, is now decades ahead of us in trying to understand what their residents are exposed to in terms of noise and the potential harm to their populations. I'm encouraged because actually in the last several years, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in the U.S., the Department of Transportation, and some other federal agencies have basically tried to increase awareness and increase the amount of knowledge we have about noise. So that's encouraging, but we've got a long period of dormancy that we basically have to overcome for us to get good data and understand exactly what are Americans exposed to and exactly how might that be harming their health. And kind of to expand on that, what's the significance of having this large pool of data? A lot of what we know about noise exposure in the United States and virtually all of what we know about uh, sound exposure and music exposure comes from relatively small studies. Now, these studies are useful. Some of them are quite high quality, but there's only so much you can do with a small number of participants. So from a research perspective, we 
are concerned about, as we say, the generalizability of small studies. So if we have a study that's just a few dozen people, for example, the results there might be suggestive, but they're probably not something, again, that we're going to take to a policymaker and say, hey, based on this, we need to do something. So the power of this study is the notion of getting thousands and thousands of participants and tracking their data over time. So we're not just looking at a snapshot for a single person, but we can actually talk about trends across uh, states and um, large populations. And that's what gives us the, the power, the statistical power to say, with confidence, we believe here are exposures that people are experiencing, and here's the association to their health impacts. We need that statistical power, again, to arm ourselves to go to policymakers and say, look, here is a very robust data set that shows this particular association and exposure, and we believe this warrants some action on your part. I'm kind of wondering at this point, any predictions of what you might find? So that's a great question. I am anticipating, based on other prior studies that I have done and others have done, that we're going to see generally that people in urban settings are likely to have higher noise exposures, and they may also have higher headphone exposures from what we talked about previously, where people are turning up their music and other media to sort of overcome the background sound. So previous data has suggested that city dwellers can have exposures that are well above what the environmental Protection Agency believes is a safe exposure level. That's about 70 decibels on average over a 24-hour period. So I'm expecting that urban dwellers will be above that level in general. We really have no data to date on rural uh, dwellers in the United States, so I'm not sure what to expect there. I'm also quite confident that we're going to find some surprising results. I imagine some people we're going to find have very extended durations of headphone use uh, and perhaps listen at very high volumes. Again, coming into this with not a lot of data to set the stage, uh, anything we find is going to be quite interesting. But I guess the one thing that I would anticipate finding, again, is that people who live in large urban areas in the U.S. are probably going to have some of the highest levels that we measure. We're recording this conversation near the end of March. And right now, I feel like we're across the country seeing an unprecedented amount of teleworking because of the coronavirus and COVID-19. People are working from home, working remotely. And that means a lot of Zoom calls. That means a lot of teleconferencing and a lot of headset use for some folks. Do you think that you might see that reflected in this data as well? You know, it's quite possible. And as you say, um, with the kind of unprecedented events going on now and the fact that we have a data set that extends over time, we may be able to explore these associations and see what kind of impact does remote work have on people's daily noise and music exposures. The guest is Rick Neitzel, principal investigator of the Apple Hearing Study. The app is the Apple Research app, available now in the App Store. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the new ASHA Learning Pass. ASHA members can access more than 900 hours of ASHA CE content free through June 30th, 2020 in response to COVID-19. To start learning, log into your ASHA account at on.asha.org slash learningpass2020. That's Learning Pass with a capital L and a capital P. 
Support for Ash of Voices also comes from Ash's new resource that's unheard of. This online resource features a variety of tools developed to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. Learn more at thatsunheardof.org. Production assistance for Ash of Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm JD Gray, and this is Ash of Voices.